0: This podcast is a project of the Mass Cultural Council. We believe in the power of culture, the arts, humanities, and sciences to enrich communities, advance equity, and foster creativity.
1: It feels like a very poignant moment where there's, there's a lot in the balance that is urgently necessary for us to address.
0: Hi, I'm Anita Walker at the Mass Cultural Council, and welcome to Creative Minds Out Loud. Our guest today is Nicole Therese Dutton. She is a poet, a teacher, and an editor. Welcome to our program today. Thank you. It's nice to be here. You know, I was reading some of the notes uh, before you came on our program, and they talk a little bit about your interest in the power of the arts in social change and transformation and it makes me think about we did a lot of work around the legacy of John F Kennedy our native born president mm-hmm. who, whose legacy included the national endowment for the arts but one of the things he said that always stuck with me is that this is paraphrasing that artists are particularly sensitive to injustice and as a result have a responsibility to speak out when they see it and really be leaders in social change. And we've seen this lately, recently,
1: through history. Absolutely. Is that the way you think of it? That is one one way that I think of it. I think artists are sensitive, but I think that one of the things that, that folks are particularly aware of is just the power of observation. And then that whole second, for poets anyway, the whole second kind of task of assigning language to the experience. And so assigning language is a way of thinking, and it's a way of kind of synthesizing that the power of observation and then also the thought. And so I, th- I think that uh, it's a natural kind of impulse to to speak truth to power, just by virtue of speaking truth itself. And that that is a, a really powerful act. And so my sense is that that kind of engagement with the world, that sensitivity with the world is sort of manifest in the poems. And then the poems, of course, are meant to have an audience and meant to be sung and meant to be received by someone.
0: You know, it makes me think of uh, sometimes that things happen and you just sort of get numb and dull to what's going on around you that might have, you know, generated a certain level of outrage at one point in time, but we just plain get tired. Mm -hmm. And we run out of the right vocabulary. We run out of a way to express it. Isn't that what poetry
1: is is so particularly potent at doing? I think it is. And I think that the part of the project of each poem is to build language particular to the experience. So it's a way to kind of reinvigorate our interaction within our relationship to language itself. And if you look at poetry, you look at people you know, making up words. I mean, the language is plastic, so it's always building. It's always expanding. It always can be made to accommodate new ideas. Um, and so I think that there is always that aspect of play. And, um, and there's something generative just in kind of thinking about language as a, as a way to convey experience. So you're a poet, but you're also teaching
0: poetry. And so you're seeing the next generation come up through your classes and, and your students at Emerson. And can you give us sort of a little insight into what the next generation of poetry is like, what you're seeing and hearing from uh,
1: young aspiring poets? I'm so proud of the poets at Emerson. I also teach in the Solstice MFA program, so that's a little bit of an, an older Community. They're still young, and they're still at the beginning of their careers. And I would say that one of the things that I'm most impressed by is um, is their hopefulness and their willingness to be not only sensitive but vulnerable and to to speak um, their own experience. In a way that um, that may help, or be a brightness, or be um, to bear witness to, to really difficult personal kinds of experience um, for the sake of others. So there's a real generosity of spirit that I would say that I see. Um, And I can't characterize the work itself as any one thing because I I see people working in all different modes and some of them rowdy and some of them very sly and subtle. But in general, I just, I feel that they're really, they're very heartfelt and just so patently hopeful in a moment where, you know, that's an important kind of tool to have hope that's um, necessary because I think it's easy to become overwhelmed with the negativity and also not just negativity, just to to be overwhelmed by the the stakes right now. Like we, it feels like a very poignant moment where there's there's a lot in the balance that is urgently necessary for us to address um, as a as a society, as a people, as a as a planet. <laughs> so um, it's it's easy to become despairing, uh, and I see that my students are are willing and able to. To rise. You know,
0: when you talk about the pressing issues that we read on the front page of the newspaper every day that has everybody worried, whether it's climate change or uh, issues around immigration, there's probably people who would never connect poetry with overwhelming issues. And yet you spoke about them as if they're such natural consequences of each other.
1: I well I think that there's a long history of poetry, you know, poetry carrying a people. Is we have a long history of that in this country, but that's a long international history of the the poets being the ones who actually are able to convey the story, communicate the history, provide a context for what's happening right now. And so we we have a long tradition of of the poets being at the forefront of this kind of I want to I call it like spirit holding, you know, so that people know that they're not walking alone and that people are informed and, and armed. So I, I feel like this is old. This is an old <laughs> tradition that, that folks are carrying on.
0: I want to talk about you a little bit. When did you know you were a poet?
1: I started writing poetry when I was really young. My mother loves poetry, so it's all her fault. You know, it's she <laughs> it's she, always the mother's fault. It mom. is. <laughs> and so she she brought Langston Hughes and my Angelou and you know, she brought so much poetry into our house and that was a part of our lives. And um, and she also always gave us the sense, I have two siblings, that of course we could participate. Of course poetry was accessible and, and a, a part of a conversation that we could we could include ourselves in. Um, having read other poetry. We could, of course, create poetry. We could write our own. And of course, there was a need for the poetry that only we could produce. So I think that that's something from a very young age that I had a sense of. This was you. This was your voice, poetry. Sure, sure. And and that was encouraged. When I, I was the poet laureate for Somerville, the first poet laureate for Somerville. And one of the things that I was really impressed by when I was doing that work was when I would go into the community and I would talk to folks and people never felt like they had agency to write poetry. They never felt like they could really understand poetry. They felt that poetry was one thing. And so it was really wonderful to say, you know, to provide them with examples of poetry. First of all, this is really diverse. There's a thousand different kinds of poetry. There's all, as many different people there, their voices there as, you know, poetry to convey their um, their particular truth. But then also a lot of folks didn't feel like their stories were worthy of poetry, that um, that they had something to add. And so when we started having the conversation about who they were and who their families were and you know the community somerville itself we had we had a couple workshops just on place and the city of somerville and the way that it's transformed over the years and people found that they had a lot to say and then they had these they had all these memories and then they, they found like oh yes this this is something that i can put into a poem and then when they when they tried it they recognized like that their ability to build a poem was was you know, it was more than they had anticipated and they were pleasantly surprised with that. So that was a beautiful thing to see that, that people really could recognize that this is something for everything, for everyone. Poetry is something and has something you don't for have to everyone. Buy an instrument or have equipment no. or. <laughs> and most people have language and, you know, multiple languages. And uh, and so we can you just tap into who you are and what you already have. And that is enough to bring to the table.
0: In your classes with, again, young aspiring uh, poets, you talk a lot about uh, the creative process. What do you mean by that?
1: You know, essentially, it's, it's two things. First, it is developing that capacity to observe. And so that requires that one, you know, you have to acquire, you know, develop a sense of stillness in order to be able to even just look and take in information. And then the second thing is to to be able to translate into language, whatever that is you are observing. And to practice that, I guess the third part of that is to read widely and wildly. Um, Because again, you, you were not really trying to build poems that just live in our sock drawer and in our journals (laughs) and in the back, you know, like that's fine if that's that's fine that that happens. But ultimately we're building poems because we wanna connect with each other, first with ourselves, then with each other. Um, And so we do want to uh, read and understand what has conversations have happened around us before. And then also think of the ways that we can add to that in the way that only we can, our unique and individual way.
0: I hate to ask this question because there's such a lovely quality about this conversation about poetry and and making poetry and what it means. But um, there's this little evil bird on one shoulder saying, how do you make a living at that? I mean, people are going to school and paying tuition to learn how to write poetry. And
1: then what? Um, That's a great question. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like that's a good question. My, My sense... Uh, as a writer is is the commitment to the work is different than the commitment to making money and making a living from the work. Those are two totally different projects. If they can overlap, beautiful, wonderful. Um, but I don't feel that they have to. And I feel like if I tasked writing poetry with supporting my family, then that would inevitably affect the kind of poetry I was building. And And I, you know, I love writing poetry and I love what it affords me personally in terms of like the peace of mind and the practice of it and um, the community around it. And so I wouldn't really want to have to infuse that with this other kind of obligation. But also I think that the poets, this, this kind of training, this reading, this critical thinking, this meditative practice, this observation, this considering other people, the cultivation of compassion and empathy and patience, because any writer or any craftsman will tell you that you have to practice and practice and fail and keep failing and fail and fail and fail and and continue, you know, your work in just kind of practicing your tools and how to use them and even deciding what, what merits your attention as a project you know those are all things you have to work on and those are skills that i do think are really transferable so these are people who who are able to go and sit in a room and learn all different kinds of critical thinking skills and all other kinds of writing. And you know, these are people who who do make good lawyers because they have a beautiful relationship <laughs> with language and the specificity of language and how language can be deployed and what the connotative and denotative heft of all of the words might be. So these are people who who do have skills that they have developed or. or let's say there's other occupations that these skills can lend themselves very handily toward that, that may have higher salaries attached to them than just a poet. You mentioned the poems in the sock drawer.
0: What about, it? I mean, accessibility, it's a conversation with people who read the poems. How do poets engage the conversation through their poetry with others?
1: Well... You know, I I feel like I don't want to say something that is um, prescriptive because I think everyone has their own relationship with what they are trying to accomplish with each poem and each project of the poem and how they want that to enter the world. Because I do think, you know, because Emily Dickinson wrote some beautiful poems Uh that she kept in her drawers, you know, and she wasn't necessarily interested in where and how the poems would travel after she received some very negative feedback on the poems. And so it was really important to her for her process that she keep writing those poems and that that they not be burdened with um, the expectation that other people may put on them when they're received. So that is, I think that's valid, that's totally valid. But I think that there's there's all different ways to enter into the conversation. I think um, I've seen really commonly that, that people will respond to a specific piece of art or respond, like have a response to a particular poem or event and that will be acknowledged. And so that's an easy way for a reader to track where the moment of this poem or the inspiration of this poem or the specific um, map it to the specific conversation that it intends to be a part of. So those are really direct ways to, to respond in ways that your reader can follow. And then in terms of accessibility in general, I feel like I, for creative folks, I, well, I tell students not to worry so much about that because my sense is that if you can be clear and if you can be, if you can write something that's honest then people will be able to, it will resonate. You know, people will be able to, to hear that. And then, you know, there's a lot to do with taste. And if it's not someone's taste, then maybe that's not the poem they'll gravitate toward. Maybe it's something else, but that can't be your, that can't be a thing to be preoccupied with while you are in the process of building the poem. Would you be willing to share some of your work with us? We would love to hear a poem. Absolutely, absolutely. Every answer is yes. And guitars burning us up quick as malaria, strapped into the hind bucket of secondhand Buicks, speeding away always and always dumbstruck by the drums trundled in our bones the whole interstate home. We love the basement band drenching us, cotton eared. We love our pomade and polyester bodies smashing their atoms against other bodies, our habit of becoming massive bumper crops of noise. Sharpened with sweat and honey glazed, we are kindling, snake hips swerved to iced Ohio hairpins. We are tucked chins and tuned limbs set for everywhere past curfew, past subdivision tree lawns, crackling black grackle like alarm clocks. This blood hollers all the linking verbs by heart, the jewels inscribed within congruent and uprising integers, the many, many ways in which we are not small and not sleepy, but born of a pure velocity. We are burning through cassettes and frost stunted tulips, We love the way we carry power cords in our teeth and wind loops around the block with time to kill. We love and we love and we love, and it doesn't ever matter if we get there.
0: Beautiful. Nicole Torres Dutton, another one of our creative minds out loud. To learn more about this episode and to subscribe, visit creativemindsoutloud.org.